0: Hello, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today a good friend whom I've known for a while, uh, Dr. Pastor A.J. Sherrill. A.J. was the pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a.k.a. uh, Rob Bell's former church, and uh, I've got to know him in that context, and he recently became pastor, uh, lead pastor, I believe, of St. Peter's Church in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, an Anglican church, and... there in the South. He's also the author of several books. Uh, A lot of them have to do with the Enneagram. So uh, the Enneagram for Spiritual Formation, um, Enneagram and the Way of Jesus, and then several other books. Uh, Urban Disciple, following Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew. Quiet, hearing God amidst the noise, and several others. He's just such a an interesting voice, a gracious pastor, and has had a lot of really unique experiences. We talk a lot about just ecclesiology, church, and what it was like pastoring Mars Hill Church, and what it's like in his new position. And just uh, it was just a really uh, I just I really enjoy any time I get a chance to hang out with AJ, and I think you will as well. If you'd like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology The All the info is in the show notes. Would really appreciate your support. And if you wouldn't mind leaving a review of this show, that would be awesome. And also sharing this episode and others that you have found helpful on your social media accounts. The only way people know about Theology The is for you to tell them. So thanks for your help. And uh, let's get to know the one and only Dr. A.J. Sherrill. Hello friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the I'm here with my friend AJ, Cheryl. AJ, you've never been on my show. I can't believe it, man. I'm so, I just, every now and then there's a name that I'm like, what the heck? How come we have not podcasted together? So thanks for finally coming on. Oh, I guess I finally invited you to come on and thanks for saying yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to push my way into your show. I. <laughs> it's funny, we've talked enough over the years that it's it's great to be with you in this way, but I always just love chatting anyway because i so respect um your life and your what you've been um really trying to do for the last few years so it's an honor to to be together in this way
0: i appreciate it man the feelings definitely mutual um let's why don't we just give a short introduction to who you are for people that don't know your name um and i I would love to talk about i would love to dive into what what it's what it was like pastoring Mars hill church i mean one of the most well known and and maybe among the more controversial churches in, in america and you filled some pretty big shoes. We'd love to hear how that went. Um.
1: And I will, <laughs> I will give a little, a little discrepancy here. Um, we would be Mars Hill Bible church. So oh. the Mars Hill church that some of your listeners may be thinking, <laughs> I, I did not replace Mark Driscoll in Mars Hill church channel. <laughs> I was at Mars Hill Bible church in Grand Rapids, Michigan founded by Rob Bell. Right. Um, and so just to make sure there's clarity, that is, uh, but yeah, yeah, I'm happy yeah. to chat about that season. Cool.
0: Yeah. So wait. Yeah. Where were you yeah. uh, born, raised? What, how'd you get in the ministry? And then we'll jump into your pastoral experience.
1: Yeah, I'm all over the place. Um, I was born in Michigan, but raised in Nashville and Orlando. Planted a church in L. A. Lived in Atlanta. I think my fondest years come from doing ministry in New York City at a church called Trinity Grace. Back in the day, I pastored in a neighborhood called Chelsea, and just just absolutely fell in love with Manhattan, love New York. Mm. We had a daughter and just started sensing like you can raise a daughter here, but we just didn't feel like called to do that. So Mm. um, we responded to a call to Pastor Mars Hill um, Bible Church in Grand Rapids back in 2016, and it just felt like the right thing. We had done incredible um, life-sharing gospel ministry in New York City and just felt like that season after five years – was coming to an end. So we transitioned to Grand Rapids and did that for four to five years. And then most recently I've just had like a, a call to Anglicanism for a long time and have sort of served undercover as an Anglican. <laughs> Although I'm pretty like what I would call tongue in cheek, ecclesiastically promiscuous. Like I, <laughs> I, I love so much about yeah. so many different traditions. Like I love to borrow from the charismatics to the liturgical, to the yeah. sacramental, to this, the, you know, I mean, There's just so many things from Eastern Orthodoxy to even the Jewish synagogue. How do we pull so much beauty into following Jesus? Because um, I think Jesus is the most creative um, reality in the entire universe. And Hmm. so in seeing Christ in so many different church traditions um, has been a real joy to kind of like be at a buffet table. Nevertheless, we've been called to Anglicanism specifically um, for the foreseeable future Okay. And I mean, I think probably until I die. So we're serving in a city called Charleston at a church called St. Peter's Church. And it's just a little outpost, a really mm-hmm. missional church, um, egalitarian. So we love women in ministry. We love charismatic spirituality. We love liturgical, sacramental faith. So we've just tried to blend a lot of streams together for the glory of God. Okay. So that's what we're doing here by the beach and just trying to okay. love people every day. So... So cool.
0: Hey, we, we, before I forget, can you move to your right a little bit? My my camera's really narrow. Yeah, right there perfect. You're centered perfectly there. Um I, I resonate so much with that, bro. Like the this I I I don't think I've ever, ever described myself as ecclesiologically promiscuous. I have said I'm kind of like an ecclesiological mutt, but maybe per, promiscuous is a little more jarring, but yeah, I I I mean given the nature of the work I do, I work with, I mean, 15, 20 different denominations and everywhere I go, man, I always, and maybe it's part of my personality, but there's always a piece, at least a piece of this, whatever ecclesiological tradition. I'm like, man, that is really beautiful. That, that is awesome. I want to kind of integrate that into my own kind of life and, and spirituality. Even if there's certain traditions, I'm like, I don't know if I could fully plant two feet into here. There's always like beautiful aspects of so many different Traditions and denominations and i've seen so much commonality really you know i 'll be in a reformed church one weekend, a Wesleyan church a Presbyterian, a charismatic and there's actually a lot of over a lot more overlap than people often think you know um, it, in in a gospel centered humble biblically faithful church you know there's just there's so much overlap but um
1: yeah I think people are are really committed to like cynicism with regard to the church today. And I Mm. get it. Like the church is anything but perfect. I'm certainly far from it. Um, However, I I think there's a lot of, um, there's like a healthy practice of instead of going into somewhere, evaluating it and assessing it as if Mm -hmm. we're the standard is to say, wow, what's the beauty here? What's the essence of what God is up to that I can really capture and appreciate and maybe even participate in. And so that's sort of been, I think a good corrective to some of the um, cliche cynicism that we just see, and I yeah. get it. Some of it's real and true and hard and traumatic. And at the same time, there's also beauty in the midst of the brokenness. And so yeah. I just am much more attracted in this season of my life to sort of being on beauty hunts rather than just yeah. always like getting out my guns.
0: No, I say, I, yeah. And I, you know, I read story after story of church hurt and abuse and abuse of power and sexual abuse cover-ups and all just, just sick stuff, right? And you're like, man, this, that's just, yeah. We need to step it up. Uh, yeah. um, but I've, mm-hmm. I've had the opportunity of being in churches where there's massive churches where the, the leadership is so humble. No power trips. No, you yeah. know, pastor parking spaces and $300,000 salaries or whatever and sneakers and preacher, or preachers and sneakers. You know, that I I don't know. I've been in just places where the potential for an abuse of power is rich and ripe, but the leadership has been off the chart, humble and and loving and and serving the poor and doing things that Christianity should, should yeah. be doing. Not perfect, you know, but man, it's... Uh, so I, I don't know. I've seen so much of the good side of the church. I don't want to discount the negative, but I'm like, it's not all that. Like, you do know there's some amazing pastors out there, you know, and leaders and people and Christians and churches and so on. I I, I want to, so you, did you, did you take over directly after Rob Bell or was there an interim pastor between you two? I forget.
1: Yeah, we had a guy in between us. Um, so I, I did not come in right after Rob. Um, there were actually a couple iterations and it took about a five year process. And after about five years, um, we came in and, and moved there from New York. So, okay. What was that? So you, so
0: five year space, that, that's, it's not like you had to fill, you know, you weren't coming in right on the coattails of, of Rob, but what, what was it like coming into Mars Hill? Can you describe that maybe the church for us? I mean, people just know it from a big different, or, uh, distance, right? They know Rob, they maybe have a vague idea of what his church might look like, but what was it like coming into Mars Hill, um, and, and pastoring that, that congregation?
1: Yeah, Mars Hill was, like, creatively a response to um, things that just needed new life. Okay. So, like, there are several denominations that are sort of, like, big deals in the West Michigan area, area. And over the course of time, you know that, like, often tradition doesn't, like, pass on the flame. It hands you the ashes. And I think what happens is um, if you don't explain the why of what you're doing in a denomination or a tradition or any sort of history – the next generations are like, wait, what are we doing? And why do we do that? And do we need to do that anymore? Yeah. I think Marcel was was um, – Rob creatively responded to a kind of like religious, like stodgy yeah. deadness in that area. And so the things he, were, he was doing back in the early 2000s was just so fresh for people. And I think what can happen is in that sort of trajectory, if you're not careful and you don't have like really good boundaries – you don't really know where that train stops. Hmm. So it's like, okay, like what what are we about? And we know we're not that or that, but what is this and how do we stay centered? Hmm. And so um, I think a lot of my role, and I don't know if this is true for everybody, what I sensed from the elders when they had come to New York, they had seen what we were up to in Chelsea through Trinity Grace, the elders were just like, we feel like there is a movement back toward like authentic historicity mm-hmm. to the sacraments, um, to the spirit, and all with like a Jesus-centered reality. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of like – the, like there's this church in Ephesus that if you've read Revelation that happens where, you know, the spirit of Christ is writing through John. And it's basically saying like, hey, you, you've done like really great things and you love the poor and blah, 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 but you've sort of lost your first love. And so you should you should go back and find your first love. And I, I felt like um, through the process of time, and I'm not going to blame anyone for this. I'll just blame time. Um, I think it's easy for churches, organizations to sort of lose their first love. Mm. That, like it's a fight to keep your first love. You have to intentionally um, like like pursue that. Otherwise, you'll drift. Yeah. And I think that Mars Hill was just in a season of saying like we need to return – to what it is we believe our first love is. Cause we don't know that anymore mm. where we've sort of creatively deconstructed everything. And so um, my, I think I sensed my role was to come back and not to bring people back into religion, but to say, okay, there's some really deep, beautiful work we can do on re- reclamation. Mm. Like what should we reclaim where there's power and grace and goodness and beauty and truth. Mm. And so for us, that was like, I mean, there's one word, it was Jesus for us. Like Jesus needs to be the center stage, not a personality, not a brand. Like even Mars Hill needs to die to our brand Mm. so that Jesus can be made much of. And that's what I came in to do. And that was really beautiful work Mm. and really hard at the same time.
0: Well, yeah. Well, my question you set me up is how was that received? Um, I, I would imagine there was a diverse response to that.
1: Yeah, a mixed bag. I mean, there were people at Mars who were there because they felt safe nowhere else and had trauma around the word Jesus because of whatever their past baggage they brought in. And then we had people that were like, oh my goodness, we're so excited mm. because we, we are committed to the gospel and want to see this be a gospel movement. Um, so, and it was everything in between. So it was a spectrum. Mm. Um, I would say that um, I had a lot of people that were not on board with um, communion, or what we call the Eucharist. Yeah. And our elders were like, we want to make communion the center of what we do. And I'm like, great, cause I'm an Anglican and that's awesome. And that's what I bring. So like, I'm not gonna bait and switch you. Like, I love that. I love for not my preaching or not some band or some whatever to be the center, but we always come to the table and we welcome people to receive the body and blood of Jesus mm. cause it sets us free. And it nourishes us for this missional life we've been called to. Yeah. So, like, I was surprised how, what a mixed bag that was. So, mm. some people loved it, and we're like, "This is the sentence we've been trying to say, but didn't have the words." Mm. And others were like, "This is the sentence that we hate, and we can't even we don't even have a capacity to imagine a life where communion means something to us." So, I mean. Inevitably, in every transition, you have people come and go. Right. And so ours was not unique in that way. We had people come and go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, coming in, it, it was um, it, it was a challenge. But the biggest thing was to say like, hey, let's be really clear about who we are and where we're going. Yeah. And um, let me do that in ways that are most conversant with our values so that I'm not here to speak a new language of like we kept the values, the mission, all that stuff was was there. But let's put Jesus back on the center stage to where it's not even a question. Right. And, um, you know, let's try to reclaim some things that maybe we lost along the way.
0: And that, and that was difficult for some people? Like, help me understand why that would be difficult. Were there people that really, d- they wanted the creativity of this thoughtful gathering, but really didn't want Jesus at the center? I mean... Um, I
1: don't know. I mean, I'm really gracious on like my, I don't know people's motives yeah. and I hate a assign- I'm, I'm an Enneagram guy. So like yeah. telling people what their motives are is just not a, a good <laughs> idea. Um, but I will say that um, my associate pastor made this comment that he he remembered those early days of being in meetings with leaders and just being honest, hey, just so y'all know, we're going to be a church. <laughs> and I think for Mars, it had become the idea for a lot of people that like, we don't know exactly what this is, but we know we don't want to be a church. Uh, okay. yeah. And, you know, I had said to the elders, like, um, and, and I'm saying that th- that was a, a minority of yeah. people. Nevertheless, that's usually the loudest group. And I bless those people. I love those people. And many of those people were really hurt by their church experience. And so I have tons of grace and I want to have a a big ear toward their story. And at the same time, like God called me to be a pastor, not of like a thing or a conference or like some, you know, amorphous organization, but, but the church. Um, And so I was pretty clear coming in, like we're going to be a church. And what does that mean? It means Jesus is our center. And what does that mean? It means we're going to practice his way and we're going to submit to the scripture. Um, We don't get to write the story. We get to participate in the story that's been handed to us that God's saying, join me and be creative. Um, And so for some people like, when you say something, they hear another. I think what many people heard is, wow, back to the theological straitjacket. And now yeah. we're gonna be religious again. The very thing we came out of and committed to from Mars Hill. And it was like, no, I think there's a third way. Yeah. Like, I don't think the idea is like, you can um, just do whatever you want, or we can be like religious sort of um, straitjacket, sort of boring people it's like, well, I think there's there's more options on the table for us and we should explore those in the way of Jesus.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. It sounds like, I mean, there was probably a, a well, you've basically said it, that the church had a lot of people that were dealing with church hurt, perhaps even spiritual religious trauma, or at least they might frame it that way. Would that be accurate that maybe a higher percentage of that kind of uh, de-churched, barely re-churching kind of Christians with a lot of kind of baggage of traditional Christianity, would that be a pretty higher, maybe a higher percentage of Mars Hill than maybe your average church?
1: I think that's fair to say it would be a higher percentage. And at the same time, that would still be a minority. Oh, okay. And yet it would be a higher percentage for sure.
0: Well, it's, it's, even if it's a minority, it's a, I got to pick a word here. I don't want to say loud minority. That sounds almost negative. Uh, Maybe a needy. Minor, or just a a minority of people that, that require some, some care and, and pastoring and attention, maybe more than your average person that doesn't have any church hurt. They just show up, worship God, try to live their Christian life,
1: you know. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, these are people who are willing to, like, give the church another chance. Yeah. And so I think they deserve precision. Yeah. And they deserve empathy. Um, they deserve to be heard. And and at the same time, I always wanna call them to expand their imagination about what they think um, is possible or what they think are the options on the table. So like pastorally, I think you have to do both. I think it's yeah. easy to sort of acquiesce and to say, well, we'll just sort of do whatever and be whatever you want us to be. Or you can overreact to that and be like, no, we're gonna be this and this is how it is. And, you know, So it's like, what is the other way of listening deeply, but also leading well? Yeah. And that's the challenge I think for most leaders today is it's really hard to lead in an age where individualism is sort of becoming supreme because it's hurting cats. And anytime you say anything about here's the direction we're going, it's like, well, what about this and this and this and this? So leaders have to be really, I think, um, amorphous or, or I should say um, agile in in sense of like we are going somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I think where we are going will be spacious enough. To um, give everyone a place, right? Mm-hmm. So let's make it spacious and not so narrow. Yeah. But let's also go somewhere. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's
0: honestly my. I think that's my favorite crowd. Is the kind of yeah the D church. I, I get a lot of um. I mean, a lot of listeners listening right now. You know, we I, I get a, a a decent number of emails or messages that were kind of like I was kind of on my way out, but you know, I heard your podcast. And it's like, Oh, I can, I can tolerate this at least. <laughs> or, or I get a lot of, you know, progressive people that might say like, you're, you're the most conservative podcast I'm willing to listen to, you know, or, or some pers- conservatives that say you're the most liberal podcast <laughs> I'm willing to listen to. But I, I just, I love that kind of deconstructed, searching, honest person. Um, they, they kind of see through some of the the BS of, with Western Christianity. They're not enamored with churchiness, but they still read the gospels and they're like, I just can't, I can't get away from Jesus. Like I look at Jesus and this story makes the best sense of the options. And Jesus seems like he's paving the way, like this is a good, this is, I want to live a life like Jesus. Now I'm frustrated. They might say, and I might say with, you know, you look around it, kind of the typical Christian Western church, whatever, and say I just not I'm seeing a a disconnect between what I read in the gospels and what I'm seeing in church. And 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 sometimes Mm -hmm. people have, you know, legitimate spiritual I don't I don't like to use the word trauma too flippantly, but they they've they've had serious like hurt in church, you know? And other times people, I don't know, sometimes it can be no matter where they go, they're always kind of a victim, you know, and and trying to, I don't know, trying to navigate that kind of like legit, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like the, 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 so, some people who have had some, some like, like really in-depth like traumatic experiences in the church and other people that are just, I don't know, they're just fussy for lack of better terms. <laughs> 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 but I, yeah, what I, I'm last... saying is I love both. Like I actually love all of that, you know, for some weird reason.
1: <laughs> the last five years I've taken like such an interest in like first century Judaism um, second temple period, if yeah. you're familiar with that language, like what's the sort of climate Jesus himself would have been steeped in. Yeah. And I'm always surprised how deeply religious Jesus was and was throughout his ministry. Like he was always going to synagogue, always going to the festivals, participated in Torah study and memorization. I mean, you, you name it. Mm. Jesus was a card carrying religious Jew. Mm. And at the same time he was willing to spar and deconstruct the Pharisees, understanding of second temple Judaism. So it's like he himself had this agile sense of like, I, I'm not, I'm not against the institution. I'm against the interpretation in which you are trying to bring it to bear. Yeah. And weird. I think for me, that's been a good recipe as I've dealt with my own hurts in the church of saying, um, who could understand that any more than Jesus Yeah, who was handed over and betrayed and traumatized by his own best friend, yeah. his own best friends. I mean, his, his friends, his, his family literally left him and um, to abuse, to yeah. death ultimately, to humiliation. Um, and so I, I'm always asking myself, like, if you're going to follow Jesus, AJ, you can't follow him out of the church because hmm. he loves the church. He died for the church. He died for the world. And the church is that community by which the world um is, uh, it hears and sees, it should see as a signpost of remnants of the kingdom of God coming to bear on the earth. Um, yeah. What do you say
0: to the person? It's, this might be 5% of my audience now, maybe more that, that just can't do church anymore. Like they just, like, I just can't do it. I just, I go in and I just, it drives me crazy. and I just, I sit there and I, I just, I can't do it anymore. So I'm going to try to live my life as a Christian outside of the context of an ecclesiological context, what, what advice would you give to that person?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you say even that phrase, I go in there. <laughs> I think that's what you said. I mean, we're already treating the church as a noun and uh. the body of Christ is at best a verb to be given away to the world. So I would say that without people in our lives and and it can be a house church like the the mode of it I think is up for creativity and investigation. It it is a sense of saying you can't do this alone though. If you think that yeah. you are going to be bred for the world alone, you're going to be exhausted, bitter. Um we just need each other. So whether that is like a large liturgical church, a mega church, a house church, a mid-sized presbyterian like I don't think any of that matters. What matters is to say, like, am I around a group of people that are orienting their life toward the kingdom of God in this world? Mm -hmm. And how do I become accountable to that? Because we are really sophisticated in our ability to do what we want. Mm -hmm. And so we need people in our lives to say, hey, listen, I know you think that's going to be life, AJ. That's going to actually be death. Mm. And let me show you why. And let's walk together this path of following Jesus because here is where in Luke 24, that just does not square with G- what Jesus is leading us into. So I, I I, think the conversation I want to have isn't like I'm leaving a noun, but is it, am I involved with the verb of the mm-hmm. church? Are there people around me that are tethered to abiding in Christ, yeah. as we learned from John 15, that I'm actually intentionally regularly walking with, that can call me on my stuff and that together we can serve the world and be bread for a hungry, starving society for mm-hmm. truth and grace?
0: That's so good, man. I it's it's hard, it's hard when people desire that but have a hard time finding it. You know, because true community can't be created by one person. You have to have other people that have the same similar vision of wanting to get involved in your life that are digging in, that are holding you accountable, and want to be held accountable. And and I I've, I've gone through seasons where I'm like, man, I want everything you're saying. I want that. Like, I God, give me that. I'll, I'll open up my home. I'll whatever. I'll and it's just sometimes
1: it's hard to, hard to find. Um, yeah. Let me say something about that real quick. My, I, I have the same struggle, you know, even all these years later. And I yeah. think the older I get, the harder it is to yeah. make like really deep spiritual friends that have like the time, the capacity, and also like a similar view of, of what it means to be a faithful presence. Um, Ed Gunger, my, my mentor, he's a bishop, uh, in the Episcopal church. And, and he, he once said something to me that just blew my mind. He said, AJ, friendship is the stuff of destiny.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I'm God. like, wait,
1: what? Cause when you're young, friendships come easy. Yeah. You meet people, you play ball, whatever you, you know, you do crafts, whatever, whatever it is, like your hobbies, like it comes easy. The older you get, I find friendships are getting harder for me. Yeah. And to, to like back up and to say, if I'm struggling to find friendships, I, I need to realize like, this isn't like, um, this is sacred ground. Like to find deep spiritual friendships is really hard and um, I should pray about it and to see like what God might – who God might drop in my lap. But I will tell you as Henri Nouwen says, community is that place where the people you least want to be with are always there. (laughs) And often I think the people God has for me to be my brothers and sisters in Christ walking this world aren't people I would have chosen in the first place. And that's why I'm always like, hey, if you're struggling to find that, go back to church. Try to join – like give it another shot. If not, pray about your neighborhood or who's currently in your life you're not intentional with. But it often doesn't look what you – But it's often not a bunch of really attractive people sitting around a Restoration Hardware table sharing the best appetizers and wine that you can. It's it's often different than what we think. It's Hmm. not the J Crew commercial. (laughs) Oh, but I want the J Crew
0: commercial.
1: (laughs) No, that's good because those people remind us of what we like. They reinforce our preferences in the world, and they make us feel spectacular. But that's not that's not what Jesus did with his disciples. Yeah. We're talking about the JV that did not make the cut. We are talking about teenagers. John was probably 11, you know? And he chose people that were left out. Uh, huh. And he put himself around a table of, couldn't be more politically diverse if he tried. Let's go
0: there. I, I was going to ask this uh, in a second, but since you tossed me that one. So Mars Hill was very diverse theologically and politically. Is that correct? Like one of the more theologically politically diverse churches that I've, and I've, I've only known it through you and I've hung out with some of your elders and stuff, but, um, you would, you guys are telling me even your elder board, you know, some were much more progressive, some very conservative. And then they say, yeah, we represent the congregation. We've got Trump voters. We have Trump haters. We have everything in between. We have, um, very progressive people, very conservative people, um, First, is that an accurate description? And secondly, what was that like, <laughs> pastoring
1: that? Kind yeah, of- I mean, w- we had someone on Trump's cabinet <laughs> that was a part of our church and would come back regularly for worship. Well, I know who that all is. The way yeah. to, <laughs> yeah. All the way to, you know, the, the president of, you know, the school board or whatever. You're the super, you know. Um, so that was always, like, to see the, those two people in the same room, a couple rows apart, with hands lifted up worshiping Jesus, was like that's the church. Yeah, but how did you you know? And, h- and how that- did
0: you pass? Like, uh, yeah, because in, in I, I know other churches where they have this on a much lower scale, and they're like, I don't know, I don't know how to do this. This is a disaster. I like I can't help them to see each other as fellow believers, fellow Christians, and fellow humans sometimes.
1: Yeah, so are you can you repeat your question?
0: Yeah, yeah. How how, how did you a pastor such wide yeah. diversity in a way that would foster unity? Did they naturally have a hey, I know this person's yeah. on a different side of everything, but I love them anyway or did you have to correct address this some kind of animosity that existed in the congregation?
1: Well, I don't. I don't know if if I did anything. I would say that. Um, but you know, I, I, my my um, default is to is to give them um, an overabundance of credit. So I would imagine that uh, that's that sort of um, soil was already fertile. I, I will say that I was very intentional of making sure we knew the center because once you define the center you can sort of desacralize a lot of other things. And what I mean by that mm. is we said, okay, if the center is the Apostles' Creed for us, which our elders affirm that, and we we taught that, what that means is we can make space for all sorts of differences and call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. So we, we decided to take that line of reasoning rather than just like preaching the headlines of CNN or Fox News. We said, okay, what if we define the center as historically what the church has defined the center in the Roman empire. Um, so let's do that with the Apostles' Creed and let's make space for difference because that's part of our formation. Like you actually need people that think differently about politics in order to, to help you see a broader viewpoint of what people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And that's only good for you to hear that. And it does it doesn't mean you have to even agree, but it means that we need to be in the same room where we can humanize one another. So like I use two Ps to do that. So like, for example, um, your positions on, ever we all have positions on almost anything. So take any issue, like, yeah, great, have a position on it. But what's even more important, if not more important, is having the right posture, not the right position. Mm. So like how you hold your positions, how, the how you hold your positions is as important as the positions you hold, Hmm. how you hold your positions is as important as the positions you hold. So imagine like holding a bird in front of you, like to keep that bird from flying away, you have to hold it with some conviction, but if you squeeze it, you'll kill the life out of it. Hmm. And so I tell people like have positions and hold them have conviction. That's cool. But when you squeeze the life out of someone across the table who differs from you and has had a different life experience than you, and yet you share a love for Jesus, him as Messiah, like that is, that is not the church. Right. Like when you, look at, when you look at Simon the Zealot sitting across from Matthew the tax collector, <laughs> I don't think we can appreciate historically just how different their political views were. <laughs> one is in bed with Rome. The other wants to kill, like one literally wants to slit the throat of Caesar. So to have those two around the table, I think Jesus is being very creative and is showing us an example that if our tables don't have some sense of diversity, maybe we're not doing the right thing. Um, so we just preach that a lot of what a gift we are to each other when people get to reveal part of their story. That's nothing like what you know, or have come from. Mm. So seeing that as part of your spiritual formation, that part of you being formed is learning to expand your understanding and your grace toward others. Oh, and by the way, if you want to change someone's viewpoint, if you hold that kind of desire that I want to change the way they think about something, the best way to do that isn't to shout them down and to hold your position. It's to have a kind of posture that helps them to see, maybe someone can have a different viewpoint than me mm-hmm. and not be a jerk. Maybe mm-hmm. they can love me well. And I'm open to your thoughts now too. It's a That's really great. great way to help people see your point. That's
0: great. Well, How, how, did, that, how did COVID affect all this? Because most pastors I talk to say, Whatever political or even theological tensions existed in my church were magnified times a thousand (laughs) during 2020 to the point to where they're like, this is the most challenging discipleship season I've ever been in. And it wasn't primarily because we weren't gathering or there's this pandemic. It was the the hyper-polarization of everything, and it's still like this today, right, has just made it almost impossible to, to pastor people through that. Did did you experience a magnification of the polarization through um, COVID and how did you handle that?
1: On both sides. Yeah. You know, one of the things I tell people is that never before have the far left and far right been more different on their positions, but been more alike in their posture. (laughs) So like, I love offending conservatives when I'm like, Hey, you know who you remind me of? You remind me of like that, that far left progressive camp. And I'll tell progressives, like you remind me so much of staunch Republicans." And they'll be like, "What?"
0: Yeah
1: And it's like, yeah, I mean, even the way you cringed when I said that, that's exactly how they are toward you. <laughs> and and that that matters. Like we should we should care about that within the church. So I, I think like like what we desire to do and what I've desired to do here in Charleston is to give people like options and freedom to choose. Um, a few different pathways, mm-hmm. but to make sure that in your freedom of choice, like I'm studying first Peter right now and teaching that at St. Peter's and um, Peter says like, Hey, live in freedom, but don't use your freedom to exploit it. Mm. Um, like to the neglect of others that like, how do we, how do we lay down rights in such a way that makes space for someone else's freedom? Cause that's what true freedom is. That's good. Um, it's to say, I am free to actually choose your good and sometimes that's going to impinge on what I prefer to do. Mm-hmm. But that is the way of Jesus. And that's what's so hard is like we're called to a cruciform life to follow him. And we just prefer to cling to our rights and do what we want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, And so w- when you can soak in that sort of formation, um, it gives people options to say, yeah, I can either choose to serve others or I can choose to serve myself either way. You know, I'm not going to be shamed. We can be loved. But I think people need options of like, hey, there's a few paths we can take here. Let's choose wisely, but let's follow the spirit. And let's not be heavy handed on policy. But let's give you a few options of pathways. So like we did that with masks. Like we just gave a few options. But at the end of the day, it was like, what does it mean to follow Jesus with what you decide? And you need to be sure that you're going to be held accountable to that, not from me, but from the Lord. So But But that's never done easily and perfectly. There's always going to be problems. Yeah, totally. The mask thing.
0: I I, who'd have thought something like a, I
1: know,
0: two ounce mask or I don't know, big you know would be such a symbol of division and identity. It's it's just on both sides, both sides of the you know anti mask pro whatever. I don't. It's 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 psychologically fascinating, sociologically like as a. If I was a sociologist from Mars and I came here, I would have been just in a, just in a heyday, like examining the psychology of masks and like understanding it, it just, yeah. it was, yeah. Um, I'm in Idaho. So COVID ended about a year ago. Um, so <laughs> it's been fun looking at the rest of the world and and uh, <laughs> what's been going on. But um, I travel a lot. So it's, 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 it's even that alone, like the state, the state and however blue or however red the state is and J, what news channel they're listening to it's just it's fascinating the whole thing's fascinating but um let, let's i want to talk here about your transition i mean you've gone from a large church to a much smaller church a non-denominational to an anglican church but you said you were already anglican in spirit basically uh for a while now so this is your this is kind of a coming home to you is that a, a good way to describe it or
1: yeah that's perfect yeah hey, the, oop, did you cut out are you there I'm not, I, that's all. Nope. That's perfect. Period. Um,
0: well done. My understanding of the Anglican church is it kind of captures this kind of eclectic ecclesiological permiscuity that you describe yourself as. Would that be accurate that Anglican as a denomination, it fosters this kind of healthy diversity that already resonates with how you approach the faith?
1: I think in our best moments, maybe, (laughs) um, as in any family, um, there's some skeletons, right? Um, so we're in a little tributary called the C4SO. Um, my Bishop Todd Hunter, who used to run Alpha USA, he also used to lead the Vineyard Movement, um, Wimber Disciple. I mean, it's hilarious that he's an Anglican Bishop. Um, because he just comes from all over the map and yet found this home. He he wrote a book called Accidental Anglican. Huh. And I think that would be – the C4SO, which stands for Churches for the Sake of Others, it sort of describes a lot of us, as you just termed. So we're like egalitarian, which means we believe women in leadership. Um, that's not obvious or agreed upon in the Anglican church right. as a whole. Um, we are charismatic. That's not obvious and agreed upon either necessarily in the Anglican church as a whole. Um, We are sacramental, which is definitely agreed upon. Um, And we're scriptural, which is definitely agreed upon. So like there are even – like we have to practice denominationally what I just talked about. We have to practice locally, like Mm. posture and position. Like let's center in Jesus and have some core convictions around what it means to be Anglican. But let's also like demystify and desacralize some other preferences that we have that I'm not sure like in the full kingdom of God are going to be that important. Mm. Um, maybe we should reconsider, like how hold, how tightly we hold some of these things. Well, so there's some diversity. We've got a yeah. long way to go. Yeah, like like every organization, we've got a long way to go. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I hope we can stay together. We'll see. <laughs> well, tell me about the
0: differences between going from like Grand Rapids, Michigan, to Charleston, South Carolina, like going from north to south, because that's got to bring. I mean, whenever I talk to my friends in the South, or even I visit the South, it's just a, it's a different kind of Christianity because it, because it's a different kind of culture really. And I've I'm more and more, I'm appreciating the cultural influence of Southern Christianity versus kind of everywhere else. Have you experienced that? Would that be accurate? Or is, is maybe the Anglican church might be immune to some of that? Or
1: I think that we've got a lot of work still to do on racial mm. reconciliation. Um, I mean, the soil here cries out with right. the blood of slaves So I'm aware of that everywhere I walk. I mean, even we have, we're sort of 10 minutes outside of downtown in a place called Mount Pleasant, and we're on 13 acres, about two miles um, as the crow flies to the beach. And it's just like beautiful land. Mm -hmm. And I'm deeply aware when I walk and pray on this land of the um, the cries of the suffering Mm -hmm. who for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. were enslaved here. And that, that has to do something to a location. That has to do something to the atmosphere. Um and so I, I think that um I I think that's something we're dealing with not just like as a good idea, but it's actually in in the soil that's here that mm-hmm. that we've gotta make steps toward um reconciliation and owning um the brokenness and mm-hmm. the suffering. Um and at the same time I would say that What's happening right now is the the lines are being redrawn in the South because so many people are moving here. Um, when you look at Charleston, we'll we'll say uh, like Austin and some other places, it's just people are relocating here in droves. And so, like my neighborhood is full of people from Connecticut and Jersey and Ohio. There's actually a there's actually okay. a um, website here called Go Go Home to Ohio or Go Back to Ohio dot com because people from the South are so sick of Ohioans moving here. And um, I'm a Michigan Wolverine, so I don't have a lot of love for the Buckeyes, so don't get me wrong here. But I will say that what we can live on that level of of state, and, yeah. and we can live there and, and have an adversarial opinion about people that come from a different region. Or we can say, um, Jesus has actually called us to make disciples of all nations. Yeah. Like, What if we saw the newcomer to our block as like, Jesus bringing people to us that that we can love and we can serve and we can say like how do we make space for you and your culture come be a part of us here um and I'm a southern boy I was raised in the south so I'm not like some transplant from the midwest that that didn't wasn't raised in the south so um it was amazing to see the eyes of our people just open up of like conviction of like oh my word yes like what if Ohio is a gift (laughs) (laughs) could we imagine that right um And the Midwest, uh, you know, uh, Grand Grand Rapids is a sort of for, for a long, a long time, it's sort of a Dutch outpost of reformed Christianity. And that's a gross generalization because there's so much diversity within that. But, um, you get a lot of people that at the same, same time, like sort of protect, like there's a way we do things here. And, um, there's a phrase there that's, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. And, um, that's sort of tongue in cheek, but but when you're not dutch and you move there you kind of feel that you kind of do feel that yeah. you're held at arm's length so to be the church in any context i think what it's going to require of us no matter where you are and where you're listening a um a a hospitality that will expand and stretch us mm-hmm. to our greatest capacities and that's why we need um the community that's why we need each other because we can't do it on our own
0: yeah that's good i've just i mean i've grown in my appreciation of the geographical um the the unique cultural influences of, of specific geographical regions and the specific kind of vibe that each area, region, sometimes state kind of creates, like the unique challenges that certain regions regions present. Um so I'm from Southern Southern California. California has a lot of I mean obviously California has a kind of a unique culture. But also a lot of just Californian pride. Like, really, it was it – was, yeah, there's California and then there's everybody else. And I know people in Texas feel the same way, right? There's Texas and everybody else. And, and I've sensed it from people living in kind of New York. It's like, if you can make a New Yorker kind of – I mean, I don't want to say it, but a little bit better than everybody else seems like. Like, there's just kind of New York pride a little bit of like <laughs> – like, if you talk to a New Yorker, like, oh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Idaho. They're like, oh – and you can just sense the like judgmentalism, you know, <laughs> but, and I say you that because I felt that in California, it. like, it, I get it. What's that? You. you <laughs> it's a shame you couldn't hack it in the city. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 And, for and, sure. And I know because that's how I was in California. Like when I moved to Idaho, it took me like years to stop saying, you know, people like, Oh, where are you from? Like, well, I'm, I'm living in Idaho, but I'm from California. You know, like, like I'm, I'm not. I I'm culturally aware, like I'm, I'm up to speed. I'm creative, you know, I'm, I'm with it. I'm not some backwoods Idahoan or whatever. Um, it's just such, w- there's just such w- interesting vibes. Um, the Pacific Northwest has the same thing, you know, this kind of like, I don't know, there's this pride, which can be good in the sense of like being kind of in a good way, like proud of your region, the, the geography, the culture, the food, the climate, the people and everything. And, but it can easily and subtly turn into just this almost like mini ethnocentrism that you see from just Americans or in other countries. I don't know. It's, it's it's something that I've been thinking about on a, on an ecclesiological level and how church planners who move into a region, man, you got to really get to know your cultural yeah. challenges. You know. Yeah.
1: Um, well, I think there's a difference between like cultural pride and cultural elitism. Yeah. Or cultural superiority, and, and it's the same with like. Um, there's a very big difference between patriotism and nationalism totally, yeah. and learning to discern those two takes work and hard questions. And, um, you know, it's ultimately about like loyalty is my loyalty to my tribe or is my loyalty to the least of these is my loyalty to something greater than just my comfort, like my preferences. And that's the things that stretch you is I can have pride in Charleston But if that takes away from making space for people coming in, receiving like radical hospitality, then I'm buying into the values of the empire and not the kingdom.
0: Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit on a broader level? Cause I know you and I resonate a lot with this, just this man, just how much of our American culture has seeped into our Christian posture as a church. Have you faced that as a challenging aspect of discipling people? separating their yeah, allegiances I mean,
1: or? Yeah, loyalty systems is what it comes down to. And I can tell it even last night around my own table in my house. Um, I had some family in town and you can tell it in people's facial expressions that when you have a conversation about the kingdom of God and when you have a conversation about um, a political election, and I'm not saying it's not a Venn diagram and there's not some overlap there, um, but I I am saying that when you can see it in the micro... Um, sort of movements of someone's facial features hmm. that they're obviously more bought into the hope of who's elected versus the hope of who runs the universe. Um, I can tell the difference and it's easy to be like, Oh wow. Okay. I think your, your allegiance is probably to a flag versus the lamb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm sitting in judgment over you. I, I think that we need to be careful that our allegiances um are just in the right spot like my daughter goes to a little tiny little christian school that's really sweet we put her in the small school we could we moved here because we didn't know if public schools would even be going to school Mm because of the sheer volume of people in a pandemic and so we put her in this tiny school and at the end of their year they were doing their pledge of allegiance and so we were at her little graduation and she she's eight years old so she was graduating second grade and she pledged allegiance to the to the american flag and then she pledged allegiance to the Bible, and then she pledged allegiance to the Christian flag. And I just said to my wife when leaving, I said, "What do you do when those things aren't in congruence?" No. Like that's confusing for a little girl to know, like, "Wait, if, is my allegiance what, how do I split my allegiance here if there's differences?"
0: Yeah."
1: And, um, and I said, "Well, I will tell you, like, she pledged allegiance first to the, to the American flag. And that spoke volumes to me that the first thing that we're going to pledge in a Christian school is to the Stars and Stripes. And I'm a patriot, don't get me wrong, but I'm not a nationalist by any means. Yeah. And and to say, I I don't, we need to have a conversation with her about where we pledge our allegiance first and foremost. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's going to be really good for us to talk about and hash through and clarify around the table. Um, so it's hard. And that's, that's, yeah, that's
0: tough. It's interesting that it was three different pledges. So it's almost like a, <laughs> a Trinitarian, yes, you know, Um, so I, I, yeah, my, my kids had a hard time with that. So I, I don't, I, I personally don't pledge the allegiance and I don't, I don't, I'm not judgy about it. I don't judge other people that do. Um, And even with my kids, they know I don't. And I made it really clear. I said, Hey, look, you have no judgment on my part. If you do. Okay. Do, do not do it because your dad does it. Here's the reasons why I don't. Here's the reasons why maybe some other good Christians do, um, and you need to make your own decision. Well, my kids all said, "No way, I'm not going." <laughs> but they But they, they got more. I mean, it, it's 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 fascinating how that is so offensive. I would say they were persecuted because of it, but it's not easy for a kid to make that decision in in school and and. And and to not do that, and I, I said, look, I stand, I I'm respectful, I I respect my country, I obey its laws in as much as I don't conflict with my whatever. But that the whole idea of allegiance, I've just I don't. To me, that is that is a very religiously profound act. It's a liturgy, right? Um, and I want to be careful with liturgy habits of liturgy liturgies that affect and symbolize my, my allegiance. I can obey Babylon, but my allegiance is to the God of the exiles. Um, I don't know. So maybe, maybe when I talk like that, I come off more convincing to my kids. They're like, well, you weren't really neutral and how you paired it. I'm like, well, no, I really, I really would not be bothered if, if you did. Um, but yeah, but it, it's fascinating how that, that you can, you can understand how in the first century, how, not giving your allegiance to Caesar was was invited persecution, you know. And you see this in in some of the late first century stuff, you know that that that, that it really was a class clash of religions, you know, the religion surrounding Caesar and the religion
1: surrounding Jesus. Um, man, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's an emperor worship is dominant in this time. Yeah, and I think I think it's some deep work needs to happen in our society of what is, what is, what does America worship look like? Yeah. Because we're obviously not doing incense and bowing to right. America, but can we discern new ways of where our worship and our hope has everything to do with the direction of the state
0: yeah.
1: versus the end breaking of God's kingdom? Um, I think those are, that's good work that Christians should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that n- need not necessarily lead you to despise America. It right, may actually right. lead you more deeply into having a love for this place than a love for its right. people. Right. So to tease out those nuances that we don't need to hyper react one direction or another thinking that it's yeah. a zero-sum game. But there is some parsing that needs to happen and clarification that we need to have of like where it does our allegiance ultimately lie? With whom? Yeah. With whom do we um Do we truly worship? Like when Peter says to honor the emperor, my take is that Peter's in Mamertine prison under Nero, and he's writing to Christians in modern Turkey, and he's saying to, wait, honor Nero? (laughs) The guy whose foot, boot, is in your neck to honor him? And what people don't know about the context is that was a step back because the real commitment was to worship Nero, Uh. to worship the emperor. They were deified. So when Peter says honor the emperor, he's not saying that we need to stamp the emperor's behavior is okay. Um, What he's saying is that um, the time is short, um, live faithfully, and give honor where it's due, but ultimately our allegiance is not to Babylon. It's to the kingdom of God. It's almost
0: like the, it would almost be within the framework of love your enemies. Like, honor Caesar not because he's Worthy some some great public figure, like you said, that gets you should give your allegiance to, but it's like because he's your enemy, but we are enemy loving people, give honor to you know, uh, the leader. But it's definitely not trying to sanitize (laughs) the emperor or even elevate his status. But, um, yeah, well, AJ, dude, um. Thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw. I I wish we lived closer, man. We're on different sides of the country. And I just so, whenever we get together, which is very rare, I just so resonate with just your posture and everything and and your approach to ministry. And we have a mutual friend. uh, I I won't say his name because he didn't give me permission, but he he was at your church in New York. And uh, I remember I brought up your name. I, I think we didn't even know that we both knew you. But he said, I've never been pastored like I was when AJ was my pastor and he just almost not quite tears in his eyes, but just, just raved about how you weren't not, not just that you're a good preacher, good public intellectual, whatever, but that you pastored him well. So, um, I just so appreciate that about you, bro. Pretty oh, that's be great, rare these man. days. That means a
1: lot. Cool. Yeah. It's good to see you, man, as always. And thanks for inviting me on.
0: Yeah. Oh, uh, real quick. Where can people find your uh, your books, your uh, ministry, and everything? Do you have a website
1: or? A- yeah, just go to That's ajsherrill That's a j s h e r r i l l dot com. And uh, I'm sorry, I know it's. I think it's dot me. <laughs> dot sorry. me. Okay. Um, dot me. I think it, someone has. I think someone has that. I don't know. Com me. Try them all. Whatever. Huh. Um, but uh, a simple search on Amazon is also really easy to find books. Cool.
0: Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show, bro.
1: Yeah. Grace and peace to you, brother.